Good morning, Renaissance. Um, good morning. My name is Lester, and I'm one of the pastors. And it's my privilege to uh, come before you this day and just share God's word with you. Uh, please keep uh, Jordan and Jessica in your prayers as you're traveling about giving a report to other supporting churches. So it's kind of one of the things we do as a church plant is that we have a lot of great churches supporting us. And every now and then, it's good for us, namely Jordan and Jess, to show up and just kind of give a report of just things, how, how things are going here and what God is doing here. Also, it's just really good. If you haven't noticed, a uh, missing part in our church, kind of really a, a soul in a lot of ways for our church, has been Aswan, um, one of the pastors here. And he is finally back after spending one month, this entire month, uh, being with Young Life and doing a lot of great work there. So we're glad to have him back. Uh, if, you've been, if you're joining us or have been joining us, uh, we've been going through the book of Philippians to talk about and kind of learn the pathway to joy. And uh, today we're going to be wrapping up that series here in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. So if you open up your Bible app or look on the screens to your left and right, uh, let's go over Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the peace of God will be with you. Amen. Today we're going to be looking at uh, kind of the pathway to joy in the, in the lens of prayerful submission. Um, and before we start, I, you know, I, I did want to ask you guys all a question. Can you name the one invention or, yeah, the one invention that has saved so many relationships, so many marriages, so many friendships from fights, from saying words that you, you would regret later on, from judging one another along with time and money? Can you think of the invention that has done all that? Any guesses? <laughs> That's true. That's true. Cell phone? No, that causes more fights. <laughs> okay, it's three letters. GPS. Global Positioning System has saved so many friendships, so many relationships, so many marriages from fights, from saying words to one another that you would later regret, angry looks, just really like bitter, like silent treatment. It has saved a lot of those things. Um, because now you can just punch in an address and just go, just follow directions. Back in the day, before there was uh, cell phones and GPS, you had to actually know where you were going. If you were planning a trip, you had to know. You can't just hop in a car and just take off. Because they'll be like, where are you going? I don't know, we'll just figure it out. Uh, we'll just get there. Like, no, that's not we're, not, we're not doing that. You had to actually know where you were going. You actually had to plan it out. There was someone who was driving, and there was someone who was in the navigator, whoever it was, on the shotgun seat. If, that's kind of the default. If you're going to sit shotgun, you're now the navigator. You have a couple jobs. Give directions and keep talking to the driver to keep him awake. <laughs> that, was, that was your job. Um, and so we need these things 
for our lives. Um, and for years, this is the way it was. But with the invention of the GPS, you kind of don't need it anymore. You can kind of just punch an address and you can get there. But uh, maybe the challenge is, but if you, if you don't know where you're going or how to get there, you know, it's kind of dumb not to ask for directions. It's kind of foolish. The GPS has saved many men, many husbands, from the reputation of being bullheaded, stubborn, and not asking for directions because now we can just, <laughs> we're, we're scot-free. We get, we're in trouble for other things now, not, not for being stubborn, not asking for directions. Um, but in as fact, as New Yorkers, uh, every other day we get asked questions from tourists. How do I get there? What train should I take? Because they just don't know quite how to get there. And our responsibilities as New Yorkers, living in the greatest city in the world, is to share our knowledge on how to get to a touristy place we don't want to go to. <laughs> but you feel free to go. Go, go there. Good. Just stay out of the main area. Um, and that's how it happens. Um, but when it comes to life, you know, and God, and living for God, we're actually a little bit slow on this. It makes perfect sense that if you don't know where you're going, you don't know how to get there, it makes perfect, rational, wise sense to ask somebody or figure out how to get there. Uh, but when it comes to God, we somehow make this leap and say, you know what, we don't need that. When it comes to God, living for God, and what He wants for our lives, we make this leap as if, you know what, we'll just wing it. You know what, we'll just hop in the car of our life, and we'll just kind of go, and we'll just figure it out. And, you know, God take the wheel, just you lead me on. And, but that's probably not the wisest way to do things, probably not the, most, uh, the best or the efficient way to do things. And we've probably been to a lot of fights, a lot of disappointments, a lot of hurt, just because we've gone about it that way. So this morning, as we're wrapping up the series in Philippians, by looking at the pathway to joy through prayerful submission, and I'm going to define prayerful submission as praying all things to God and letting Him answer the best way He sees, he sees fit. I'll define prayerful submission as you pray, you pray all things to God, everything to God, whatever it is to God, and at the same time, you let Him answer it the way He best sees fit. See, now we're going to, today we're looking at two words, prayerful submission, and these are two words that I recognize may rub some of us the wrong way. Prayer is something we've heard about, told about, we should do. But for many of us, we're not quite sure how to do it or kind of the best way to go about it. And the idea of, you know, the word of submission, it really, you know, causes us to become defensive because we're apprehensive about being taken advantage of. And I've had many, way too many experiences of being unheard or being silenced by just saying, just submit to it. And while I, recognize, while I recognize those two words about being prayerful and being submissive and being submission uh, can be red flag words for many of us, Paul points out in this passage that why it's through prayerful submission that it, it enables you and I to understand what it is to have joy in our life. We've said this over and over again uh, in this series. The goal of Christianity is that you get God. You and I get God. That's the goal of Christianity. That you and I get God in multiple ways. You guys, you get God as in you get a relationship with Him, and you get God in the sense like I get a God. You get to understand Him more. That's the goal of Christianity. And we've talked about in the other other parts of the series about what it is not, what Christianity is not, and all these different expectations and kind of comparisons that we really need to move away from. The goal of Christianity for every person who wants to know and seek who Jesus is is that the goal of it is so that you get God. And I, ran us and, and I do want to be clear, um, and I do want to be sensitive for those of us here today who are going through some difficult times. You know, the struggles that you're facing, the difficulties, the hardship or disappointments you're facing are very real. 
And I, please, I do, not wanna, I do not want us to come off as being dismissive or saying, you know, it's not that important, just kind of get over it. It's very real for us. And at Renaissance, we want to be a place, where we said before, we want to be a place where you here, we can multiply our joys together and we can divide our sorrows. Because that's what we receive from God ourselves through Jesus Christ. So Paul tells the church, um, and this is the thing, so the point of Christianity is to get God. But here are some things that make prayer difficult for us. Sometimes we make prayer into production. We're too busy. Uh, we're doubtful that anybody is listening. We don't see the point. And we just, it's kind of hard for us to wrap our mind around because we heard the word prayer. We kind of have an idea. We've kind of done it sometimes, maybe at a meal at, at least, or sometimes through like a meeting somehow. But we're not quite sure what it is. There was a song in the 1980s uh, by Bobby McFerrin called Don't Worry, Be Happy. Um, some people loved it. I hated it. I hated that song so much. And I couldn't figure out why until I was older. Like, maybe, I'm not saying, if you love it, fine, you know, but I'm just saying from my lens, I'll just share with you why I hated the song so much. Have you ever met someone in your life who's happy all the time? Like, they're just all smiles and giggles. No matter what's happening, they can go through, like, hardships. They can go through the worst storm in their life, and they're in a good mood. And they'll tell you stuff like, hey, God is good. Or if you're struggling, they'll tell you, hey, God is good, and he has a plan for your life. And I don't know if it's, like, the the bitterness in me or the sinfulness in me, but the first thing I think about when I meet someone like that is not, wow, thank you. Or, wow, you're so godly. I think... What's wrong with you? <laughs> or you're lying. Something's not right. Or I think, can you please just close your mouth and stop talking to me? <laughs> and it's, this isn't to say that I do not believe. It's, I do believe God is good all the time. And I do believe God has a plan for us. But sometimes when that's said to us in our difficult times, it comes off as like, yeah, 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 yeah. come on, get over it. It's kind of dismissive. Like, whatever you're going through, just, you know, God has a plan for you. Get over it. You know, you'll be okay. It's not helpful. And I wonder, I'm curious about what is really going on in that person's life because there are situations, have been situations in my life where I am not smiling at the situation. I am not happy about it at all. But it doesn't mean my joy is taken away. Um, we, we kind of define joy in the beginning as a settled state of hope and confidence in God. And so Paul writes here, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Rejoice in the Lord always. Verse 4, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, it's a weird thing that he says that because um, we, we need to kind of remember that when Paul is writing this letter, uh, he repeats this saying, he says, rejoice not once but twice. And it's important for us to remember the context where Paul is writing this letter. Paul is not writing a letter from a place of comfort like he's just sitting by, you know, looking over a beach, writing a letter, having, you know, his morning espresso or whatever. Uh, Paul is writing this letter in jail while he's still in chains. And, from the, and we, we shared before in this beginning of letter, Paul is openly admitting and openly shares about his depression, about his fears, his struggles, his hardships. He doesn't sugarcoat the difficulty in his life that some of us are kind of, maybe if you grew up in church, you feel like you have to do. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He says, this, is, this stinks. And yet, the, at the end of his letter to the Philippians here, 
He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice. This command, this encouragement, this exhortation is not coming from someone who's smiling all the time, who seems delusional, but from someone who's in the thick of it and tells it while he's in the thick of it, rejoice. I say it again, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul says it twice. And when he repeats it twice, when something is usually said twice, it's for, you know, it's, it's for a couple of reasons. One is because it's easily forgotten, or we keep forgetting about it, so you need a reminder. Another one is to show the importance of it. It says, rejoice in the Lord. And what, before we go further, we need to be clear once again what Paul is not saying about this. When he's saying rejoice in the Lord always, rejoice, Paul is not saying be happy and thankful about your difficult situation. He is not saying be happy and be thankful about how hard your life is at the moment. He's not saying be happy and be thankful about all the bad things that have happened to you. And I think sometimes we're, if you grew up, especially if you grew up in church, you feel bad at not praying that. You feel like you should pray that. Thank you, God, that this happened to me. Uh, you're good all the time. God is good all the time. Amen. Praise God. Even though in your heart you don't mean it. Paul is not saying that. We've been learning that the pathway to joy through the book of Philippians, that the biblical understanding of joy is not a happy feeling, but a settled confidence and hope in God. That this command that Paul gives to rejoice isn't a command to be happy, but it's an encouragement for us to, to remain in a state of joy because of who God is, who we are in Him, and who we are to Him. The reason why you and I can stay in a, stay in a, stay in a state of joy, not a happy feeling, it's because Paul is saying, you can remain in joy because of who God is. You can remain in joy because of who we are to him. You can remain in joy because of who we are in him. You can remain in joy because those things are unshakable. And then he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Why does Paul say in verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The reality is, whether or not you are a Christian, whether or not you believe in God or not, Everyone, every single person will struggle. Every single person in this world will go through hardships, difficulties, heartaches. No one, exempt, no one is exempt because we live in a fallen and broken world. Just like the thinking of American exceptionalism is false and it's a lie, we are not exceptional above all other countries. And so is the wrong thinking of anyone who's a believer somehow thinks that they're going to be, yeah, you and I are exempt from the troubles of this world. Actually, Paul, Jesus says, in fact, no, you're you will actually face a little bit more. Christians are people who are not better than anyone else, who are exempt from difficulties and struggles. But in fact, we, the, the key difference is, and the eternal dif- significance difference is that we have been saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ alone. As we have said before, Christians are basically people who have been saved by grace, who are beggars who have found food and tell the other beggar, hey, you're in the same situation with me. You're hungry. I was hungry too. I found what their food is. Let me show you where it is. It's not a position of power. It's not a position of better significance. It's the same position, but we just found where the food is. And we share it to the others around you. And the problem is if we have misunderstood the gospel and had the wrong expectation of God, this has happened to a lot of us, including myself, it will lead us to a lot of deep frustration, bitterness, and anger toward God. Because for, for many of us, too many of us want happiness without joy. Too many of us want to be happy, but we don't want biblical idea of joy. We don't want to be in joy. We just, want to, we just want to be in a good mood but not have any deep roots to hold us down when storms come our way. We just want to feel good and be in a good place. 
So Paul reminds the church. So when Paul reminds the church, rejoice in the Lord, he reminds them, you know, let your, let, it, let, let your life be an evidence of those around you. So we speak out against injustice. We speak out against, like, things that, you know, need to be spoken out against. But we are not in the business of revenge or vengeance. That it's in the midst of the hardship and difficulties we go through that we're reminded that the Lord is near. The reason we can endure is because the Lord is near. It makes all the difference in the world in your life, regardless, not regardless, but despite the circumstance situations you're in. It makes all the difference in you're facing a difficulty or hardship in your life, if you're alone or if you're not alone. It makes all the difference. It makes all the difference if you're struggling with just heartache or loneliness, if you literally are alone, as opposed to having people around you. It makes all the difference in your life. Whatever circumstance, situation, it makes all the difference in your life to know that someone is with you. And Paul reminds us, saying, but the Lord is near. The Lord is Emmanuel. The Lord is here. And he reminds us that our struggles, in spite of it or despite of our hardship, that our life is not meaningless. The things that you go through, they're not unforgotten or unnoticed. That we are showing in our lives, through the difficulty in our lives, that God knows what he's doing. Just like if we go back to the illustration of the GPS, you punch in a direction, you, especially in a direction you may not, a destination you don't know where you're going. You implicitly follow the directions. And you will, you will make a right when it takes a right. You go two miles until two, two miles. And you do these things because you're trusting who God is. You may not know exactly where you're going, but God does. And there's something to be said about our testimony. There was a, a TED Radio podcast uh, on success. And there was a study saying that he says, um, talking about smiling and success. He says, smiling stimulates our brain and reward mechanism in our brains that even chocolate, a well-regarded pleasure inducer, cannot match. He said, a British, British researcher found that, that one smile... One smile that we have can generate the same level of brain stimulation as 2,000 bars of chocolate without the calories. <laughs> and he says, another study has said in Penn State says that when you smile, you not only appear to be more likable and courteous, but you actually look more competent. Why do I say this? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. I'm not talking us to be smile, like be happy, don't worry. You know, I'm not talking about that. But I use an example to show that the, one of the greatest things we can do is to have a true, settled state and hope and confidence in the Lord. This unshakable confidence and trust in God and His character and His love for us, that's a testimony to those around us that while we are going through the same thing everyone else is, we are not as shaken as everyone else is because we have this hope and trust in God. We are not exempt from difficulties. But we can show through while we go through the same difficult situations, whether it be illness or just tragedy or whatever it may be, as everyone else, as everyone else, our lives become a testimony because we are not broken by it. But we look forward and hope in it because we can trust in God who is doing something in life that we don't quite understand yet. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Let your gentleness be evident to all. He says, let, the life of, let your life of trust and submission, trust in God, be, be clear. Be clear to those around you. And then he says in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, this is a weird, this is an odd kind of command. He says, 
do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. I don't know about you, but the reason I usually pray is because I am anxious. And he says, do not be anxious. And so what is Paul saying? You know? Paul's saying, so I think we have to make the difference between being anxious and being in wonder. Like, you're just not, you're wondering how it's going to work out. See, when you're wondering things, you're just like, like, for example, I wonder if my team, how my team's doing today, if they're going to win today. And so you wonder about it. Right? But then you go to work, you do, meet some friends, you do something else. You, you wonder about it, and then later on you'll check and see if your team won or lost. It doesn't bother your life at all. Being anxious is you open up and check your app, check the site every single second to make sure and see if they're winning or not. You might even throw up a prayer for your team and say, God, please let them win. They're behind. Please let them win. You might do all kinds of things. Being an anxious disrupts your life. Wondering, you think about it, but it doesn't really do much. And so Paul says, do not be anxious because the reality is that anxiety is a byproduct of a prayerless life or a life that doesn't pray. When you and I are anxious or have anxieties because you and I honestly don't really pray. Or we're very prayerless. We get anxious and worried because we worry about how it's going like, to, how things are going to get done. Or more importantly, we're anxious because we're thinking, how am I going to get this done? How am I going to get it done? And prayer is often a backup plan. You have, you, we and I have already made our plans, and prayer is just a backup. God just kind of makes sure things go right. Because we, because we worry so much about us doing it or wondering how it can be done, that life doesn't surrender to God or submit to God. And what prayer does, it exposes how self-preoccupied we are in this. And how it uncovers our doubts. There's, um, let, me give you, let me give you an illustration. Uh, growing up in a Korean, Korean church, there was a reputation of being a lot of my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, of being these prayer warriors, whatever that means. Uh, what, I, what I mean by that is there's something called early morning prayer in a lot of Korean churches. Well, they'll get up at some ungodly morning hour, like four in the morning. They'll go to church and pray for like two, three hours. And then they'll go to work. I don't know how they do it. I don't want to get up at four in the morning. But the illustration is this. What that will happen is I'm like, first of all, I'm like, what, do you, what could you possibly be praying for for three hours? I wondered about it. And I think one way someone put it, and I think it makes a lot of sense, is if you and I had to put all our prayer requests, our thanksgiving, or whatever you and I pray to God for in a bag, right? And you, you carry the bag over before the altar, and you're like, all right, God, I'm here for prayer. And then you lay it all out. You lay all these prayer requests, all these things, all these concerns, all these thanksgiving. You lay it all out before him. So you spend all, your, all the morning praying for it. You lay it out before him. And say, God, in Jesus' name, amen. And the problem is this. You start picking it back up, putting it back in your bag. Good morning, God. I'll see you later. See you tomorrow morning. And you pack it all with you again. You pack it all with you again. You didn't leave anything up to God. You just took it with you. See, anxiety is unable to relax in the face of chaos. But continuous prayer clings to the Father in the face of chaos. Anxiety is unable to relax in the face of chaos, whereas continuous prayer clings to the Father in the face of chaos. See, 
that kind of life, that kind of laying down or a lack of laying down cannot work in us because and because it would be anxious because even though you thought you might have prayed, you never really actually left anything down for the person to do. And so it's no wonder why we still remain so anxious so many times because we're not letting go. And the pathway to joy is not confidence in yourself, but it's a settled hope and confidence in God. But by taking it back up, you've taken it, but you put that responsibility on yourself. Paul says, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Paul Miller in his book, A, prayer, a Praying Life, kind of sums up uh, prayer this way. He says, uh, the problem with prayer is that it often becomes a production or a problem. But prayer isn't meant to become, it was never meant to be a production or a problem. Prayer is meant to be a conversation where your life and your God meet. Prayer is supposed to be a conversation where your life and your God meet a conversation between two people. And he's pointing out, the, he said, the, the best that this world has to offer, the best that you and I have to offer, the best this world has to offer is to teach you how to talk to yourself. The best this world has to offer is to t- talk to yourself. Change what you tell yourself, and your feelings about what will happen will change. Change your self-talk, and how you feel will change. There's nothing wrong with motivational quotes and having motivational quotes. Nothing, nothing wrong with it. But herein lies the limitations. There's nothing wrong to use it to like, yeah, that's a good reminder for me. But that in and of itself will not provide the power for you to change your life and to change your situation. Paul and Jesus, and he says like, and Jesus lives and teaches something different. What he does and how he helps you and I is unfamiliar but yet normal and natural. Paul Miller points out, but David, by quoting David Powelson, he says, he, that is Jesus, teaches you how to stop talking to yourself. He shows you how to stop making prayer into a production. Jesus teaches you to start talking to your father, to my father and your father. Jesus teaches us how to stop talking to yourself. See, the power that we have and the, and the, and the access to the power we have through God is not inward, not looking in the mirror, it's not looking at quotes, it's not looking at these things. But the power for Christians has always been to look up. To look for a hope and power and for a salvation and a rescue, something outside of ourselves, not inwardly. And like I said, I'll say, there's nothing wrong, I say, with inspirational quotes. But if that's what you're banking your life on, you're going to severely find the limitation at some point or another. And oddly enough, many of us struggle because we focus on praying and not on God, because prayer is about a relationship. What do we mean by that? We focus more on the actual act of praying than actually on the person of God. And so it's, it's like this. It's you just, you and I basically will pour out, like if you're having a conversation with someone, all you want to do is you talk to them and, and ask them what they can do, what they can give you, what they can provide for you. But you can care less about who they are as a person. You and I have had conversations with someone, or we've, had, or we've been the person of the conversation where we just share everything we want, everything with someone, or you've been on a date, you just take, share all these things, or you, in your marriage, you share all these things, and you could care less about the other person on the side. You just want to make sure you just lay everything out there. And then you wonder why they don't call you back. And you wonder why their friendship hasn't grown. Because you're more concerned about the actual act of praying or what you can get out of it than the person itself. And we keep forgetting, we keep forgetting that God is a person. 
we keep forgetting that God is a person. And we don't learn to love someone without it changing us. That's the reality of love. It's like when you actually love someone, it changes you more than you're changing them. It's an amazing thing. And Paul gives this instruction of, on how to approach prayer. See, I know a lot of us struggle with like, well, how do I pray? What can I say? Should I fold my hands? Should I be on my knees? Should I find a room? And if you're old school, should I get a, go in a closet and pray? All these kind of weird kind of things. What can I pray about? And Paul, and I'll give you the short list of what you're allowed to pray about. And Paul makes it clear. Everything. There is nothing you cannot pray for and talk to God about. You can pray for everything. Everything. It says pray and petition with thanksgiving. Pray also for the good things. One of the things that holds us back as individuals is we focus so much more on what we do not have than what we already have. And it makes you, makes you and I poor inside because you miss out on what you already have in your life. And when you focus on these things, it takes your eyes off God. It takes off your eyes of other things. And it makes your heart small. Whereas if you pray with Thanksgiving, even the good things, you, you, you go to God, of course, in our problems. But we can also go to, go to God when things are going well for our lives. We present it before him. The direction and conversation of our audience is God first and foremost. And it's important for us to understand that we can come before to God and pray him for everything. But let me kind of make one thing, just to clarify one thing. Let me be clear on what prayerful submission is not. Prayerful submission is not coming to God in prayer when you've already made up your mind. Prayerful submission is not coming to God when you already have it in your hands. I've had this conversation with my kids because um, they're sinful and rotten, just like their father. Um, and maybe, like, it doesn't, have to, it doesn't, have, doesn't mean you have to have kids, but I'm sure there are people in your life, friends and family members in your life, where they do stuff like this. Are you done with that? Or can I have this? Are you using that? And especially if you're eating, hey, are you done eating that? And they'll just kind of stick their fork in it and they'll kind of put it in their mouth. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I am now. <laughs> I don't want to eat the food you just put in your mouth. See, that's not asking. So I have had to tell my kids because it's something I need to learn myself too. I say, when you ask, you ask with your mouth, not with your hands. Because they had the tendency to grab things and say, hey, Dad, can I have this? I'm like, no. First of all, you're not asking me. You already grabbed it. You have to wait. Wait for my response. Wait for me. I may say yes. I may say no. Most likely no. (laughs) But prayerful submission is not coming to God when you already had your mind made up. That's not submitting. That's not even praying. That's just declaring, God, I've done this. Now bless it. See, presenting before God's because presenting before God is we're called to present all things and lay it down before him. But demanding is not presenting. And we can come to God in every situation. I know there are some of us who struggle coming before God because we're just in a place in our life, in a situation in our life, where we just don't feel good about ourselves. And we feel like, I, I shouldn't, nah, I shouldn't do this because God won't listen to me. Because we import our relationship, how we would do things, or how our friendships are to God. But God is beyond that. So I get it. Okay, I get it. I get it if you're dressed up to go to a party and it's raining outside, the, the bus comes by, hits a puddle, splashes, 
water all over your dress or your suit. And I get that you don't want to go to the party like that. I get it. But you would never not go home just because you're dirty. You would never not go home and go to your house just because you don't feel good about yourself, just because you feel dirty. And this is the mistake we make. Because God is a person and we have a relationship with him, you cannot import how we would be this way into our prayer life with him. You can always come home, no matter how you are in your life. No matter how dirty you are, how much filth you have in your body, even if you stepped in poop, you can always go to your own house because it's your own house. God is your father, we are his children, and he is our home. And you can always come home. Always come home. So come to God in your mess. Come to God in your messiness. And you can pray all things. Sometimes we worry about, is there anything I cannot pray to God for? Because it's too embarrassing. Or how should I pray it? Should I create a, a huge preamble and tell God how magnificent, how wonderful? Should I start my prayer with God, create a universe, holy of holies? By your word alone, you created all things. If you wanted to, you can do all things. You know, to you one day is like a thousand years, thousand years. Like one day. You just come up with all these flatteries to him as if like you're trying to win a job and present your resume to him. Should I pray like that? You can come to God with all things and all things, with, with all things and anything. And I think it's important for us to understand that as God is our father, like it's important that we come to him so we can hear his voice and opinion on things. My oldest right now is at an age where he's hearing all kinds of interesting things from other boys. Things that I really don't want to have to talk with at this point about sex, about the body, about relationships, about all these other things, about interaction with other people, about just kind of things that are hard things for him to see. He doesn't quite grasp. And there, these are conversations I don't want to have. Honestly, I w- I'd rather wait as long as possible to have these conversations. And as much as I, my default is to defer it, I've realized one thing. I'd rather have him come talk to me and get the answer than him get it from someone else. Because I don't trust that other source. I definitely don't trust the kids his age to give him the advice and wisdom of what life is all about. You and I need to hear the instruction from God himself, from a loving father who understands and cares about us, cares about us most and best, and finding answers and reasons from someone else. You can come before him. Verse 7, we'll wrap up pretty soon, is verse 7 says, And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Jordan and Aswan and I have said this before. Ever since, ever since Adam and Eve fell, ever since Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God, all of us have been on this road of disobedience and distrust. Ever since the serpent put the first lies into our hearts, we now operate out of a system of distrust. We now live as if, is God really good? Does God really love me? And we carry on the seed in our hearts. And we believe that if God loved us, he would give us what we asked for. If we believe that God loved us, he would explain to us why he's doing what he's doing, how he's doing what he's doing, and when he's going to do it. We believe that if God really loved us as a father, that he would explain every single step of the way so that we can understand. Because then we would say, and then it would be good. Then, because then we are now the final authority. Say, If God, I understand you fully. 
if I understand everything you do, then I can trust you. But no relationship is like that. How many, how many of your friendships, how many of your relationships, how many of your marriages was built on a comprehensive, full, exhaustive understanding of the other person? Because I can guarantee you, if you fully knew everyone before you met them, you would not be their friend probably. You have to build like a bunch of like safety reserves and, and a likable trust fund. Like I like you enough that what you did may bring it down a little bit, but I still like you. We can still be friends. If you knew everything off the bat, you'd be like, no way. That's too much of a risk. And the thing is, since life is not like that, since we, a lot of us make commitments and trust based on half information, little information, or almost no information, how much more, when God reveals himself through Scripture, can we find our hope and trust in him when he's revealed who he is, what his plans were, what his heart is for us, what his love is for us, that we can trust him despite not knowing all the details? Let me give you an example. I do not like going to doctors and dentists, particularly dentists. If there's any doctors and dentists here, no hate on you. I just, I just had a lot of bad experiences. I don't like going to doctors and dentists. But if I needed surgery, I would gladly lay on the table and read surgery from him or her who spent years studying, years learning, years in training. I would gladly put my life on the line in their hands than someone who just YouTubed it five minutes ago. But I don't understand surgery. I don't fully understand what they're going to do. If you've ever been in a plane, you may know some of the physics of flying. You may even know some of the mechanics of the plane. But I'm pretty sure, I'll bet good money, that almost everyone here does not know how it works. But just because you know it doesn't mean you can fly it. All I care about is, is that a real pilot? And if it's a real pilot, I don't have to know everything. As soon as the, the guy stops talking, as soon as they go through a safety procedure that none of us care about, we put on our headphones, we read a book, we watch TV, or we go to sleep. And you're at perfect peace. Why? Because you know who's behind it. You don't have to know the when. You don't have to know the how. You don't have to know the why. But because you know the who, you fully and implicitly are at peace and you trust it. And so the questions that you and I ask for too many times is, how, God? Why? When? I don't care about you, who you are. Answer those first, and then I can trust you. But in every one of our relationships, God puts relationships in our lives to teach us it's more important to know the who than the why, the when, and the how. Because if you know the who, you can trust what's going on will make sense. See, learning what our pathway to joy through this prayerful submission comes from a settled joy of who God is, not our understanding. And that's why a, for some of us who are going through a difficult time in our life, a snapshot of your life right now is an unfair characterization of who God is. Some of you are going through some difficult times, and I'm not here to dismiss it or make it light. I'm not here to say, hey, God is good. Just get over it. God loves you. He has a plan for you. I'm not here to say that. I told you, I don't like hearing that. I need your prayers. I'll pray for you, but that's not going to help me. But that alone, that one incident is not a fair characterization of who God is through all of Scripture. Because if you look at a snapshot, none of us look good at a snapshot. It only depends when you take it. When my oldest, Tyler, was about one, years old, one, year, one year old, 
I had to take him to the hospital for a checkup. He had to get his blood drawn. had to get some shots done. But if you know a one-year-old baby boy, they're not very big, and their veins are even smaller. And so if you had to, I had to hold him down while he's screaming in pain while this nurse is looking for his vein and putting the needle in his arm. But if you just took a snapshot and characterized me as a person, as a father, if you just walked by the room and saw an adult male holding down a one-year-old baby while some lady is jabbing him with a needle, you would think, that guy is terrible. He's horrendous. He's a terrible father. Someone should call the police. But if you understood the context of it, you would understand that a loving parent does what he has to do, he or she has to do, to take care of his or her child, even though they don't quite understand it. And I'm not saying the situation makes it easier, but if you can understand the who, it'll help you what? Endure. Rejoice, because the Lord is near. Be gentle, because he is near. I'm not saying it's going to make a lot of sense right here and now. Most things in our life don't. Most of the time we learn things looking back. And it doesn't take away the pain, doesn't take away the hardship, doesn't take away any of the difficulty. But we can endure and we see the joy at the end. Learning to pray doesn't offer us a less busy life. It offers us a less busy heart. Our life doesn't change. When you pray, your problems will probably still be there tomorrow. The difficulty, whatever you're facing, your situation, will probably still be there tomorrow. The difference is you can endure it. Your heart won't worry as much. And you, see, you and I need to be reminded of the relentless love that we, God has for us and his people. Let's go up here. It says, it says in verse 8, in verse, in verse 8, it says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about such things. If uh, I'm sure many of you have heard it or seen it or YouTubed it. Uh, there was a, a brief talk at the convention that Michelle Obama gave when she was sharing about her experience being in the White House and preparing her young daughters for the, uh, just, just to be daughters of the President of the United States in the White House. Uh, just all the things that they're going to face. And she knew that she had to prepare them mentally for what was going to happen. And she knew that she had to prepare them and tell them, like, whatever other, what other people say or what's being heard or what's being written doesn't change the fact of who your father is, who we are, and who you are as a person. And that's why she famously says, when they go low, we go high. When they go low, we go high. And Paul says something very similar. He says, whatever is true, whatever is excellent, whatever is no... Think about these things because... In our sinful nature, the tendency for us is to drag ourselves down, look other, uh, compare ourselves to others, drag them down, look at ourselves and drag ourselves down. There is this natural pull in ourselves to think less of yourself or too highly of yourself than you need to. And the gospel is a remedy for that. Paul says, think about the things you need to think about. Think about the things, think about what God has done for you. Think about who God is and let him lift you up. There's something, if you ever, if you ever went to a driving school, or you're driving, one of the things they teach you is where you look is where your car goes. Like when you're steering in a while, if you, you then look, if you're just like, oh, look at that person. Hey, what's up? Right? Your car ends up drifting that way. And what Paul was saying is the direction of your face, the direction you're facing will take is the direction you're heading. And Paul was saying, 
Look up. Not look at yourself in the mirror. Not look at others around you. Look up. Look up in the man on the cross who died for your sins to prove his love for us. To remind you that there is someone who deeply cares about you in ways more than you deserve and will never let you go and will always be with you in every situation, that he goes through every difficult situation to show that I've been in the exact same situation you have been and to give you access to a God or Father who understands. He says, and he, says, he ends by saying, whatever you have heard from me or learned from me or seen in me, put into practice and the, and the God of peace will be with you. See, prayer redirects our hearts back up to God, who is the source of our hope and joy. And Paul ends by saying, he reminds the church to follow after Jesus. See, we have, you and I have way too many bad examples, bad role models in our life. We spend way too much time comparing ourselves to what that person is, has or doesn't have, what that person is wearing or doesn't, is not wearing, where they live, what they're driving, whatever it may be. I don't, these are the general lists you hear in church all the time, but I'm sure you can figure out what the list is. Right? We spend way too much with too many of the bad role models. And Paul is saying, no, if you have learned anything from me, as I'm pursuing the God who loved me, and I'm looking at him, he says, put into practice. This is the one thing you and I can and need to do. Put it into practice. Pray. Do not remain silent. Put it into practice. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Develop a relationship with God that takes time. And the more we do this, the more we let go, the easier it gets. The more we let go, the more we trust God, the more we can see him working in our life. And it's like any relationship, the way you become a good friend, the way you become a good sister or brother, the way you become a good father or mother or, or, or a spouse is by spending time. No one is magically changed. When you get married, that ring you put on your finger does absolutely nothing. It's not the one ring to rule them all. <laughs> right? You want to develop something, you have to put in the time. You want to get good at something and whatever it may be, you have to put in the time. Keep on praying. As I, this is another part. Pray without ceasing. Keep praying. And you don't have to fold your hand. Pray when you're walking. As if you're talking to a person. Remember that God is a person. Pray when you're on a train. Talk to him in your head. Maybe not so much out loud. Although you can kind of get away with it in New York. But maybe not that. But the idea is pray without ceasing. Keep putting into practice. Because God wants us to come empty-handed to him. See, a strong Christian isn't strong because they pray a lot. A strong Christian prays because they realize how weak they are. And weakness is the channel by which we are able to access grace. God wants us to come empty-handed so that he can put something in our hands. You can't receive if your hands aren't open. Try catching a ball with closed fist. See how well you do. You can't. You can't even hold bags with a closed fist. You can't do anything. It's better to hold, better to be led holding onto the hand of the one who loves you and who knows where he's going than to be so closed fisted and insist you have to do it this way. Paul, once again, is saying these things, and we'll close here. But our idea is like prayerful submission is praying all things to God and say, God, these are all the things that really are important to me, are on my mind. And you can lay everything down. Heck, you could even curse. 
if it slips out of your mouth. Because God is big enough to accept those things. And if you look at the Psalms, which are a model of prayer, one model of prayer is, if you read the Psalms at the beginning, so many of the Psalms start off with, where are you, God? Why is this happening? Why won't you change this? Why are they prospering? What is going on? Where are you? A lot of the Psalms start off with a lot of frustration, a lot of venting. But if you read the Psalms carefully, at the end of each Psalm, they always come back to God and say, but you know what? I will trust in you. Despite all of this, and I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me, God. And you can say it however you want, but you need to come back up. You need to keep lifting your eyes back up and say, but God, I trust in you. You and I can come to God in prayer and trust in him. And if you're worried and you're concerned about being taken advantage of, about being prayerful and being in submission, know that Jesus prayerfully and with full submission submitted himself under the will of God the Father so that you and I can have access to him. He is not one to tell you to do things that he has not done himself, but he has shown the way so you and I can have this settled state of hope and confidence in God. And I pray and hope that today, maybe you can open up your fingers a little bit more so you can see the grace and the joy that's in God and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you that you are a loving Father. That you understand that we are children often misunderstanding you. And oftentimes we just want things from you and not a relationship. And I know for some of us, Lord God, being prayerful and being submissive is a challenging thing that it really... Lord, speaks into the fears in our life because we've been taken advantage of. But when we're afraid and when we're unsure, God, I pray you remind us once again to look up to the cross, to look up to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, who emptied himself, who, though being rich, became poor so that we might become rich. Remind us, Lord, that even though we might be afraid, even though we want to hold out our hands with a closed fist, And we can trust in you who has gone before us, who has proven himself over and over again of his love for us. Holy Spirit, continue to lead us in this pathway of joy that is settled in the hope and confidence of who you are, God, and you alone. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.